Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Carmen Blackwood. She's a scientist at Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. We're going to talk about uh, global and regional oceans and climate interactions and feedbacks with you know the behavior of the oceans. So again, thank you, Carmen, for coming. How are you doing? Hey, Richard. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk with you today and share a little bit about my my research. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background, uh, if you would, first. How did you get involved and interested in climate and oceans, et cetera? Right. So, yeah, um, hopefully that's an interesting story. Actually, as a student, uh, so I grew up in, in Germany. I went to University of Bremen in Germany for my undergrad research. I started off in theoretical mathematics, so very much like topology, algebra. I thought that was all very interesting and that that fascinated me a lot. But then when I when I came to the end, I, I really thought like, oh, maybe something more practical related to the natural world would uh, be interesting to pursue a career in. So um, that's how I uh, started working as a research assistant and grad student at the Alfred Wegener Institute in Bremerhaven, studying physical oceanography and space geodesy. And uh, so, yeah, that, that's how I first got started with, with my uh, the type of research. And that's how I then also got connected to the work I'm, I'm doing right now. The work that I was doing in Germany already was connected to the satellite mission I'm still working on uh, today, which is called the GRACE mission, the uh, gravity recovery and, and climate experiment that measures the gravity field of the earth. And uh, so in my grad stu- studies for my PhD, I was looking into how we can look at 
large scale ocean currents uh, from space using. So we're, we're measuring the gravity field. So basically the attraction that Earth has on, on you know, all, all bodies on, on the Earth. So basically what holds us on, on the ground here, but it also changes over time. The gravity field changes over time. And why is that? That is because Earth has a lot of water uh, and that water is moving around. It's, let's say, moving from the, the ice sheets. Ice sheets are melting and discarding their water into the ocean. So the ice sheets are getting lighter and the oceans are getting heavier. So using a satellite technique measuring the gravity field, we can actually tell how much uh, that mass is, is redistributing on Earth. Will this change the shape of the Earth? Will it change how it orbits? And I guess just the now the different application of gravity and the different morphology of the field will probably change a lot of things, right? Right, they do. I mean, uh, the water mass changes themselves don't change the what we call the the static gravity field that much over time. But but what we're really interested in is how how it changes our how how we can observe changes in our, our water cycle in general and and what it means for uh things like like sea level change how let's say also the ocean stores heat we can we can derive that from from these measurements and and things like that what kind of oscillations do tidal forces create or is that a small portion of the you know no, that is actually that is a very good good question because that is a, a large contribution to the day-to-day changes that the, the gravity field experiences. So these are are large fluctuations. So but uh we we of course measure them too, but what we're interested in are the the longer term changes, let's say on a on a monthly basis. So what we're trying to do with the tides is uh, using our knowledge of the tides to extract that signal out of the the gravity field that we're measuring each day to uh, derive the monthly changes that are then not necessarily related to to the tides, but yeah, certainly the the tides are a big part of those gravity field changes. Well, how much does the gravity field change in the area of a particular part of coastline at a lower high tide? Is it at all measurable or is it tiny? Well, let, let me try to give you some, some numbers here. Um, so we're measuring changes that are quite small and, and changes in the ocean, let's say, at, are about at a millimeter range of of sea surface height changes so that is you know even at the coastlines where these changes might add up to a, a few millimeters or maybe tenth of millimeters but that is how it how it would translate into a, a gravity field signal so so relatively small you know it's not like we're changing the the solid earth uh, a lot by by these water changes what are the big changes and what is causing, you know, discernible or larger differences mm-hmm. in the gravity field around Earth, you know, due to water movement? Right. So in particular, I would say, I mean, what we can clearly see and, and measure and assess are the changes in the ice sheets. Um, so we, we can see not only the seasonal 
changes in the ice sheets, but also how much water mass they're basically losing where it's then going into the ocean. So those are, are some of the big signals we can uh, we can see. And then in addition to that, more in general, we see on, on land the big hydrologic uh, changes related to, let's say, rainy and and uh, dry seasons over the Amazon basin are very pronounced. So you can see a lot of seasonal signals. But then it's also interesting to look at the land hydrology to look at uh, droughts, for example. So while a lot of the satellite centers that we have look at just surface properties on Earth with by by using the measurement of gravity, we can actually figure out how much groundwater we're losing over time uh, due to irrigation. Now, having said that, it's still with these satellites, it's it's a relatively large area that we're looking at. So it's not like we can determine on a city level how much water there is being used, but it's more on the 300 kilometer radius type of a scale. But still that informs us on a larger scale, let's say on the state and country scale, what, you know, what what is happening with the water resources and how we can uh, plan things, for example. What is the dynamic of water movement in the Arctic versus the Antarctic versus, you know, like areas that have a lot of glaciation that builds and melts, etc. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. What are some of the dynamics? So, well, we can talk about the thermal differences, maybe a little bit Arctic versus Antarctic, uh, the the way the Earth is structured with having much of the uh, continental mass in the in the northern hemisphere. We we also see a lot of the the thermal changes more in the Arctic. Uh, some people call that the Arctic amplification. Uh, of of the global warming signal where we see a lot more warming in, in the recent past versus a place like Antarctica, which is surrounded by an ocean that is actually surrounded by an ocean current that is uh, connecting all of the world uh, world's ocean called the Antarctic Circumpolar Current. And that current sort of makes also sure that that Antarctica is is a little bit more isolated from other areas uh, in the Earth, and so the the changes that we see in the Arctic are they're related more to the atmospheric changes we we see versus some of the melting and the mass changes we see in Antarctica are related to the ocean currents uh, themselves uh, changing and 
and just bringing warm water to the ice shelf area. So ice shelf areas are the floating parts of the ice um, in, in Antarctica, but also, you know, small ice shelves in, in Greenland. So there we have the basically the ocean bringing up warmer water to these ice shelves, which makes them melt more, which makes them thinner. And, and the, the ice is flowing from the center of Antarctica to these ice shelves in a, in a slightly faster way. So we, we can see the mass loss that's then occurring by these ice shelves distributing the, the ice uh, to the ocean. Okay, well, are you seeing what you think are trends or patterns or, you know, what's going to be the consequence of uh, further melting if that's happening? Right. Yeah, we, we do see some some trends happening both in, in Greenland and Antarctica. We see a, a decreasing um, ice mass, so more melting going on than in the past. Now, all of that is of course, modulated by what we might call climate variability. For example, there's some some natural cycles going on, especially if we're talking about the ocean. The Pacific Ocean has an oscillation called the El Nino Southern Oscillation, which is a big cycle in the climate system that happens on a period of, of about two to three years where these uh, changes in the circulation actually influence weather, weather patterns, not only over the Pacific Ocean, but for example, also impact us in, in California and broader scales uh, around the globe, really, uh, to the extent where we see some of these influences in the, in the Arctic and, and uh, Southern Ocean as well. But have you identified like what what will happen? You know what's happening locally in the Arctic or the Antarctic, et cetera, and how is that reflecting on the climate that people experience? You know, thousands of miles away. Right. So that's an interesting field of study. It's not necessarily my my research, but I'm part of a of a team that is organized by NASA called the NASA Sea Level Change Team, and people on that team are looking into how changes in Antarctica and these mass loss events or trends can influence uh, coasts that are, you know, thousands of of miles away. So one effect that we can then uh, measure and, and, you know, and also make a point why anybody should uh, maybe care about what's going on in, in Greenland and Antarctica is the fact that so with the mass that the that uh, Antarctica and Greenland are losing locally or or regionally, they're also so they're they're losing their their mass. So they're they're also losing the gravitational attraction that the ocean experiences. So basically, the sea level that is closer to Antarctica because Antarctica is losing mass is actually lower getting getting lower due to that. And then uh, in the far field, what we call the far field, let's say for Antarctica, we in, in the US, we would be in the far field. So now with there, it would then increase because of the redistribution of the, the water and the ocean. There's actually some interesting tools uh, out there that 
look at that effect and that people can play with so that they can see, you know, like, well, I live in, in New York. What does the change locally look like when I look at a place like, like Greenland and it, Greenland melts by this much? And uh, how would that affect me in, in, in New York City? And then, you know, by looking at some of the trends, think you've had someone on your podcast looking at climate models and models of, of ice sheets and and you can you know feed all of that information and, and the physics into these ice sheet models and then project into the future let's say under a, a climate scenario similar to what we what we have now then you can can project these changes into the future and, and see how it impacts people at the at the coast so if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. What, what does that look like, though, diurnally and seasonally anyway? You know, someone's on a given coast. What will they experience, again, just naturally, diurnally and seasonally? Well, diurnally, so that can be subtracted out of what will they happen later. Right, right. So diurnally and, and seasonally, right, it's the things that you, you naturally experience, like, uh, as you were mentioning earlier, the... The tidal fluctuations, that's something that you see on a diurnal basis. And then seasonal, you have maybe, you know, hurricanes coming in. I think the the most important point to make about sea level and the, the longer term trends of what we see, even though the some of the contributions may seem seem small, like overall, maybe like, like a like a foot or so, if you add a, a foot. Uh, still that adds to whatever your your tides or storms are naturally doing so i think that's the 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 thing to consider on a on a more regional and local basis so by the ongoing uh increases in 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 sea level uh that you have this this background change that adds to whatever has happened happening on the diurnal basis in, in terms of the, the tides and, and storms and the, the flooding we experience. So what is your um, observation? What do you think is going to happen according to the models you've seen over the next you know, 10, 20, 50 years? There's actually a, a recent report that has come out called the, the, from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel for uh, Climate uh, Change, and um, so within that framework, scientists have developed uh, some new projections that project changes up to a few tenths of a milli- a centimeter uh, changes over the next about like a, a hundred years globally, depending on too though, whatever happens to our climate and however we, you know, change whatever we're doing in terms of the uh, carbon dioxide uh, output, but still, even under conditions that are um, continuing as as we do now, or or decreasing, that sea level will ch- still change by uh, several centimeters globally. That will continue for quite some time over the next uh, hundred years or so. Yeah, but what what do you project? I'm not, I'm not asking about IPCC and other people. I mean, Scientists, quote unquote, whoever they are, you. What do you see? <laughs> what do I project? I don't know. I mean, I'm personally very interested in 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 thinking about uh, 
some of the more, you know, nature-based climate solutions, looking into what, what types of positive changes uh, we can make and then uh, go, go from there. So I'm, I wouldn't say I can, you know, do a, a projection uh, also, uh, in particular, because my research is more connected to looking obser- at observations rather than than uh, projecting. But for me personally, I think there's still a lot of potential to do things differently and have a positive outlook. Okay, well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? So I do have a web page uh, with with JPL. And uh, that is under science, uh, science.jpl.nasa.gov slash people slash burning it's currently. Uh, that was my, my name uh, just a, a few months ago, but uh, you should be able to find me there under Carmen Blackwood uh, too. So check out science.jpl.nasa.gov. And uh, you can you can not only find out what what I'm doing, what research I'm involved in, but also more more broadly about the science we do at uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab. Very good. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for inviting me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.